One of the main themes in the Bible is that of God's glory. Now, God's glory, that might sound like a, a really big concept, a really, a really big idea, a big thing. And that's because, honestly, it is. God's glory is his weight. It's his importance. It's, it's his beauty, his splendor, his majesty. God's glory is, is the weight of his person and his character and really, it's the, the shining essence of who God is. So God's glory is a really big deal. And as we follow the biblical narrative and the stories of God's people, we find there are moments along the way where men and women experience a little glimpse. They get just a little glimpse of God's glory. But the prophets told of a day when God's glory would finally be revealed and revealed to all people. This is what we read in the opening verses of Isaiah 40. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, I imagine Jesus' Jewish contemporaries had some ideas about what that glory might look like when it showed up, right? Because after all, these are Jewish people, and they had been raised on the stories of their ancestors. Stories like the parting of the Red Sea and manna falling from heaven. Stories like their delivery from slavery as a people that required these 10 otherworldly plagues. All times in which, you know, God's glory showed up in ways that really could only be described as divine activity. So when Jesus began his public ministry and he began doing some big kind of heavenly kinds of things, it would have immediately alerted his peers that something was going on. Healing the sick, the blind able to see, the lame able to walk, the calming of the storm, walking on water, the dead raised to life. I mean, if, the, if God's glory was indeed going to be revealed to all people, surely this is the kind of things it would look like, right? I mean, miracles, healing, signs. It's heaven come to earth. And it was. And those things were part of God's glory being revealed. In 2 Corinthians 2.4, we read that Jesus is the image of God. For God, he said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3 is even more on the nose. It reads, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And it wasn't just other people that talked about Jesus in this way. Jesus was, was privy to this and he affirmed it every time he said something like, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So these truths, they help us make sense of some of these miraculous signs and miracles that were a part of Jesus's ministry. They were like a beacon for those waiting for the glory of God to be put on display in the one who was to come. And they're precisely the kinds of things that one would expect, right? Well, what people seemed very unprepared for, however, 
It was not so much the big ways in which Jesus put on display the glory of God, but the small ways, the low ways. It was the things that tripped people up precisely because it wasn't the way one would expect the radiance of God's glory to show up and behave. Best we can tell, most didn't seem to have any kind of category for what it looks like when God's glory goes low. But oftentimes, that's, that's exactly what God's glory does. And so as we come through Advent and we start to kind of turn the corner and make our way closer and closer to Christmas, I want to just look together at a few striking examples of what I mean. First of all, Jesus's family tree is marked by lowliness. And, and what's fascinating about this is, unlike us, who, you know, if we had people in our family tree, I'm sure some of us do, who have lived embarrassing stories, they've made bad decisions, uh, they don't reflect well on our, our, our family name, where we might be tempted to hide those things, to downplay those relationships, or pretend like those people didn't exist. God, on the other hand, instead of sweeping these names and stories under the rug, actually highlights them in a way to make sure that we don't miss it. You know, the Gospel of Matthew begins with a, a part that maybe you've skipped over. I, I certainly did for a number of years, many years. But it begins by laying out Jesus' genealogy. Now, like most all genealogies in Jesus' day, it's, it's coming from a patriarchal culture. And the listing is almost always a listing of fathers and sons, right? So-and-so, the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so. Women were not included in these. And, and that really shouldn't be surprising, you know, considering the ways in which women were, were treated back then in the ancient Near East. I mean, women, they, they couldn't vote. Uh, they, they couldn't testify in court. They weren't typically educated or allowed to work outside the home. They enjoyed virtually no power or status whatsoever. They weren't counted at census time, and they weren't included in genealogies. That much isn't all that surprising. What is surprising is that Jesus' genealogy includes not one, not two, not three, not four, but five women. Now, this in and of itself is, is shocking and it's breathtaking. And I think it's worthy of just sitting in for a moment that in our sacred literature, that God would go out of his way to break from cultural norms to highlight five women in an otherwise patriarchal culture and genealogy, right? That's, that's amazing in and of itself. But what's even maybe more shocking is the kind of women who are included. The first is Tamar. Now, if you know your Bible really well, you know that she is best known for dressing up as a prostitute and seducing her father-in-law so that she could finally have children. And that's exactly what happens. She's the first one included in Jesus's family tree here. The second is Rahab. And, you know, Rahab doesn't have to pose as a prostitute because she actually is one. Even worse, at least in the eyes of Matthew's contemporaries, was that she wasn't even Jewish. <laughs> she, was, she was a Gentile and, and a Kenyanite, no less. Yet, as part of her story, after hiding uh, Jewish spies, her life ends up being spared. She marries a Jewish man and ends up becoming King David's great, great, 
grandmother. The third is a gal named Ruth. And she too is a Gentile, right? And I, I like to think that some of the ancient readers were just pulling their hair out, the Jewish ones at least at this point. Like, you've got to be kidding me. Not another woman, not another Gentile. What is happening here? Well, she was a Gentile and her ancestry had its origins in an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. Her people, the Moabites, they were polytheistic pagans who were known to practice child sacrifice to false gods. And it's, re- it's only through personal tragedy that she finds herself in the arms of Boaz and is grafted into the Messiah's bloodline. The fourth is Bathsheba. And you don't have to be super familiar with your Bible to know that name, right? Because her and David's story ranks as one of the most scandalous and devastating stories in the entire Bible. And here she is listed as an ancestor of Jesus. And I think it's worth mentioning, how how did she become an ancestor of Jesus? By suffering sexual abuse and murder of her husband at the hands of Israel's greatest king. And here she is being honored and highlighted here in Jesus' genealogy. And then the fifth woman included in the genealogy of Jesus is his mother, Mary, a peasant teenager who was impregnated before she was married and a reputation that no doubt followed both her and Jesus throughout their lifetimes. And more than just being included in this genealogy, what do these five women have in common? Each of them experienced disgrace, either that they committed or that were committed against them. They had tainted reputations. They endured the contempt of others. And yet here they are, chosen by God to be included here in the very first words of the New Testament, in the very genealogy of Jesus. It's, it's, it's truly breathtaking, right? And, and what, what is going on here? Well, friends, this is what it looks like when the glory of God goes low. It's as if before Jesus is even born, before we hear a word about the events that took place on Christmas night, like God wants us to know something profound about his character, about his grace, about the nature of his kingdom and who it includes. We see the mystery of God's glory going low in the birth event of Jesus itself. You know, the Jewish people, they expected this mighty military leader to be the one who was to come. Someone who could rip their land back out of the clutches of Rome by force and give it back to them. And so, you know, when they heard kingdom, they heard earthly kingdom. Like when they heard king, they were thinking earthly king. But when the glory of God shows up on Christmas night, he doesn't come as an earthly king or a mighty military leader. He doesn't come adorned with jewels or power. He isn't born in a major city or into a major family. He's born in the humblest of circumstances. He's born into poverty, a common family tasked with the common struggle of putting food on the table under Roman oppression. He comes to us as a vulnerable child, entirely dependent on his teenage mother to care for him. He's not born in a palace or even a bedroom. He's born in a stable amidst animal sounds and animal smells. He's laid in a feeding trough amidst whatever animal saliva and half-chewed food remained. 
He was wrapped in whatever cloths happened to be available that night. What is that? Well, that is what it looks like when God's glory goes low. And how about those to whom the birth event is first announced? It's not announced to kings or dignitaries, not to politicians or priests. The announcement comes to shepherds. A marginal group live in a gypsy encampment outside Bethlehem. They are a shunned minority. Right? Due to the nature of their work, they can't participate in certain uh, ceremonial washings, and so they're considered unclean. Because they're not educated in the law as others are, they're considered ignorant. Because they're without roots in the community, they're considered suspect. But while the religious authorities may have led them to believe they have no place in the temple, God has seen fit to make sure they have a front row seat to the birth of his son. Honored guests of the most high, the unclean, the ignorant, the suspect. This is what it looks like when God's glory goes low. And you know, while all this should amaze us, it really shouldn't surprise us. Because we see the same kind of glory put on display throughout Jesus's life and ministry. We see it when Jesus violates religious law to touch a leper. We see it when he allows women of ill repute to bathe his feet with their tears. We see it when he breaks from religious tradition to heal the afflicted on the Sabbath. We see it when he spends so much time eating and drinking with known sinners that he gains a reputation for being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. We see it when Jesus stops an angry mob from stoning a woman caught in adultery. What does the radiance of God's glory look like in that moment? It's not wielding stones in condemnation. No, it's in the dirt with the guilty. It's bent down between the accused and her accusers. We see it all the way to the cross where God's own son, the second person of the Trinity, the radiance of God's glory, willingly lays down his life for a bunch of misfit rebels who couldn't deserve it less. Well, friends, what is that? That's what it looks like when God's glory refuses to stay suspended somewhere in the heavens. It's what it looks like when God's glory takes on flesh and moves into the neighborhood. It's what it looks like when God's glory goes low. To which, what else can we say? But those ancient and eternal words penned by the Apostle Paul, Praise be to God. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace, friends.